Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. This is Maddie and Ethan for another episode of the Vine to Mind podcast. And on this episode of the podcast, we are going to tell you how to evaluate a glass of wine. We hope you enjoy. All right, Ethan. So today we are talking about how to evaluate a glass of wine. This is something that we do a lot of. This is something that we do a lot of. And, you know, it really is like going to the gym. It's muscle memory Mm -hmm. with drinking wine. And you can't just you can't just go a couple days of thinking that you know how to blind taste every single wine perfectly and then not ever doing it again. Because you know what happens when you let lees settle? They end up at the bottom. That's a good one, Ethan. Should we get into it? <laughs> let's do it. Let's let's evaluate. We do have a glass of wine in front of us right now. And so I think it's only fitting. After last episode, we were talking about Albarino. So we have Albarino in our glass right now. Sounds good to me. So really, when it comes to evaluating wine, first of all, there's a lot of reasons to do this. One is the quality of the wine and really kind of really taking a deeper dive into what you're actually drinking and why you're enjoying this. And there's a lot of reasons for this. But the main reason is if you like one glass of wine and one style of wine, it's best for you to figure out why. Because sometimes there are other wines that are made in the same way or have same characteristics, and that will allow you to expand your horizons. Another reason is what Maddie and I do, seems like every day now, is blind tasting Mm -hmm. and understanding what the wine is telling you in terms of how it looks, how it smells, and how it tastes, and how you feel after you drink it to figure out what that wine is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, it might sound kind of silly. It's like, okay, how do I evaluate a glass of wine? You know, like, I, I know how to drink wine. And at the end of the day, what we tell you, like, drink what you like, how you like it, right? There's exactly. there's no rights or wrongs, but we're going to walk you guys through what we do um, and how we evaluate a glass of wine to really get the most out of the experience. And again, to get to pick up on different nuances that you might otherwise look past if you're just drinking a glass of wine, which again, that's fine. You don't always have to evaluate a glass of wine. I feel like that's now every time I get poured a glass of wine, I'm doing this whole process and people look at me like I'm silly, but, um, but it's just, you know, that's what I do. That's who I am now. But I get the evaluating every beverage at this point. <laughs> I know. It's kind of like once you work in a restaurant and then you go back to that restaurant and you're just like watching every server go by and what is going on in the kitchen and whatnot. Yeah. That's how I am with wine. Well, there's a reason. I mean, if you've had Coca-Cola out of a can versus, you know, Coca-Cola out of a glass bottle versus Coca-Cola out McDonald's. of- McDonald's. Um, out of McDonald's fountains, uh, uh, you know, fountain drink, that there's a huge difference. There's, that is true. So yeah, you need to evaluate everything you do in life because it makes you enjoy life more. So shall we start with the first part? Absolutely. I feel like we're about to get into a motivational speech that evaluate everything in life. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So yeah, so let's get into the wine. And first things first, we're going to look at the site. Before you do anything with that wine, uh, we're going to look at it, right? So um, obviously, um, typically, you know, there's different styles of wine. It could be sparkling. It could be still could be fortified, but um, we're really going to talk about white wines versus red wines. And then of course there's rosé in the middle. Um, the first thing is going to be the color, right? Uh-huh. So the color tells you a lot. Let's start with white wines. If you have a clear white wine, think of clear as, you know, pale lemon, pale straw color. 
chances are that wine is going to be youthful. It might be fresh. It might be crisp. Um, so it could be young, but it also might mean that it was grown in a cooler climate. Maybe it didn't see quite as much sun. So the grapes didn't develop quite as many flavanols which will help give you some of that color pigmentation. Now, as the white wine starts to gain a little more color, um, that can mean a few more things as well. So if once you start reaching, you know, maybe a little bit more gold or yellow in color, that typically is a result of some oxidation. You know, think about when you cut up, open an apple, yeah. right? If you were to leave that other half of the, the apple just sitting on the counter, it's going to start to turn brown. So you're going to start to develop a little bit more color. So when I think about oxidation, if you go into the winery mm -hmm. and you're making a white wine, say you want to put that wine in oak, just naturally while it's in an oak barrel, it's going to receive a little bit more oxygen than it would if it was simply in stainless steel and going right into a bottle, right? Um, you know, some of that water content will be evaporated after time and you have to top the barrels off. It's going to see a little bit more oxygen. And so that's where you're going to develop a little bit more color. Also, it could even mean that maybe when the grapes first come into the winery, the winemaker decides to leave the skins on the must, on that juice for a little bit of time. And that also will develop a little bit more color extraction sometimes as well. So a lot can go into what the wine's telling you just by looking at it. Mm -hmm. It could tell you the age of the wine. It can tell you how it was aged. It can tell you where it's grown. It can also tell you how it was made all without you even sniffing or tasting the wine. All of that can go into just looking at it. And it's important to remember, as white wines get older, they gain color. And as red wines get older, they lose color. Exactly. All wine wants to turn into brown vinegar at some point. <laughs> that, that is very true. Yeah. And so looking at the spectrum for red wines, um, you have anything like the lightest wine, you know, it could be like a, you know, Pinot, Sangiovese, Nebbiolo, which you can read right through. If you're ever getting a glass of wine and you hold it side, the glass horizontal, and you have text underneath it, and you can read right through, that is automatically a thin skin grape variety. Or, and or, there was very little skin maceration throughout the fermentation process. And then you have some wines like a, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon, or even some Syrahs or Shiraz. You cannot read through that whatsoever. And so that typically means that grape had thicker skins and probably a longer maceration. But you're right, once you start seeing that garnet brick-like color, Chances are that's going to be an older wine as well. That's absolutely right, Maddie. And you think of like certain grape varieties, you know, like Sangiovese or Nebbiolo, as you mentioned, they don't develop anthocyanin very well, which is that red color pigment. So they don't have a lot of color in the skin. So typically winemakers will try to allow the skins to sit with the juice a little bit longer than other places in the world when they're fermenting wine to extract as much color they can get out of those skins. Also, even by looking at a wine, it could tell you not just where it's from, but also the laws involved in winemaking. You mentioned Sangiovese, a place like Montalcino, where they make Brunello di Montalcino, an absolute beautiful, well-aged wine. Those wines have to be at least five years old before they're released, and the reservas have to be six years old. Yeah. So looking at that and thinking, okay, I if I didn't know what this wine was in front of me, and I'm looking at one and I see this color, this lighter color and that, that brownish on the rim, I can start thinking, oh, this might be a lot of different things. And you could even throw wine laws in there as well. There's a lot that goes into just looking at a glass of wine. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's all just with the color too. There's one other thing that, you know, people come out here all the time 
And um, they're trying to learn, you know, what's cool to say, you know, teach me something to go and talk to my friends and make it sound like I know about wine, right? Yeah. Uh, people get that all the time. And the first thing I think people pick up on is, <laughs> oh, look at the legs or the yeah. tears, right? People <laughs> always like talking about that. At the end of the day, folks, that really doesn't tell you much about the quality of wine. Um, generally speaking, that's going to tell you more about the alcohol. It can also resemble sugar. Like if you were tasting a wine with a high amount of residual sugar, that'll also create more legs or tears. Um, but Generally speaking, for these dry wines that we're tasting, it's going to talk about the, it's going to tell us the alcohol level. And what I mean by the legs, if you haven't um, seen this already, um, if you were to swirl the glass of wine, and so the wine is rising on the sides of the, cl- the glass, and then you look at the side of the glass and you can start to see these streams falling back down. Those are called the legs. And the slower moving they are, the higher the alcohol, because alcohol is viscous and it'll stick to the side of the glass. Um, if they move really slow, you already know the wow, this wine could be pretty high in alcohol. And even you recently t- taught me another trick. Rather yeah. than just swirling a glass of wine, you can just gently tilt the glass to the side so it's almost horizontal, obviously, depending on how much wine you have in your glass. Mm-hmm. And then you can just lift it up and watch that dome. And you can watch those legs fall right there. Sometimes it's, I honestly, I think that's easier to see than swirling the glass and having so many legs around the whole glass of wine. Absolutely. And if it falls back into solution, you're probably guessing this wine's going to have lower alcohol or lower sugar, right? Absolutely. If it stays around, you could think the opposite of that. Okay. So we've talked for over five minutes and (laughs) we have just looked at the wine. Obviously, folks, it should not take you five minutes to do this at most 15 seconds to look at your glass of wine because I know you just want to dive right into it. But before you even take a sip, you need to smell it because that is one of the most important parts, if not the most important parts of evaluating a wine properly is the nose. Yeah, Ethan. In fact, they say 90% of what you perceive in a glass of wine is based off of your sense of smell, which is truly remarkable. I mean, if I go back to when I was younger and my mom would make these green beans that I was not the biggest fan of, but I couldn't leave the dinner table until they were finished, you plug your nose, right? You do what you got to do to, you know, choke it down. Um, Mom, I love your green beans now. (laughs) Nothing against them. (laughs) Another good example of this, I still find this story pretty astonishing, but somebody that Ethan and I know uh, conducted this exercise where they were blindfolded and given a toothpick and they had to decide what that is on their toothpick. So they had to eat that. They had their eyes closed, obviously, and they had their nose plugged. She thought it was an apple. Her friend thought it was a jicama. Turns out it was an onion. I wouldn't guess jicama for anything. <laughs> I think I've had jicama like maybe, maybe five times. Oh, it's really good. It's delicious. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so it was an onion and you would think, an onion is extremely potent. You should be able to guess that you're eating an onion, especially a raw onion. But um, that just goes to show how strong your sense of smell is. Yeah. So if you have a stuffy nose or a cold, uh, you might as well just not even taste your wine. Just drink some vodka after that. Yeah. No kidding. I think in the movie Psalm, they actually had one of the guys who was going to the doctor to get his nose cleared out right before yeah. his exam because he was so nervous. Wild. I know. <laughs> I don't blame him, I guess, if you're going for your master. But so the idea of smelling a glass of wine is really important because when you're smelling, uh, think about like a dog, right? A dog has an incredible sense of smell. They are never going to take just a big whiff, right? They're just gently sniffing. That is the same idea with wine. Never just take a big whiff of the wine because it's going to really overwhelm your olfactory epithelium, which is at the back of your nasal cavity. And there's thousands of different hair-like structures that are there to capture whatever aroma that you're smelling 
and transmit that to your brain to decipher what it exactly it is that you're smelling. So it's really based off of your memory too. So with that, if you were to take a big inhale, a big whiff, it's just going to blow right past, kind of like a hurricane, just goes right past. However, if you just gently sniff, then these little receptors will be able to capture these aromas and tell your brain what it is that you're smelling, which is pretty amazing. So when it comes to smelling your wine and evaluating what we call the nose of the wine, you could break it up into three different parts, primary aromas, secondary aromas, and then something called tertiary aromas. Every wine is going to have at least primary, but not every wine is going to have all three. So let's talk about what each individual one is. And you're probably thinking, okay, um, so you're saying that I'm not tasting peach? Or I'm not tasting apple. I'm not tasting lemon. I'm, I'm smelling that. How come it smells so similar to other agricultural products that I have on a regular basis or smell on a regular basis? There's a reason for this. So 99% of wines that you have had in your life and will continue to have are made out of a particular species of grapevines, a European species called Venus vinifera. This is one of the most agriculturally evolved products in the world. And throughout evolution... This grape species has been able to kind of develop their own mixture of aromatics from surrounding agriculture. Reason for that? Grapevines are self-pollinators. They possess both male and female parts. And I would say there's a lot of purposes to life, but one purpose to life, especially for these grapevines and other agricultural products, is to spread their seed, is to reproduce. So they needed help. They adapted aromatic from a surrounding agriculture to then attract other species to consume them. And we all know what happens after that, where they spread their seed. So there's a, there are thousands of different grape varieties under this Venus vinifera species around the world. And each one has its own unique cocktail, per se, of the primary aromas. The primary aromas is what the grape has and how the terroir or where it's grown reflect that. For example... Pinot Noir, a lot of people say they smell like cherries. If you have a Pinot Noir that's grown in Sonoma County, it's going to smell like a really ripe, almost like a liqueur cherry, but it'll still have that cherry smell. But then you have a Pinot Noir grown in a place that experiences more weather. It doesn't ripen as much like Burgundy. It's still going to smell like cherry, but it's going to smell like a tart cherry, or it's going to smell like a sour cherry, even like a dried cranberry in a way. They all have that same cocktail, but the way they're grown will be completely different. And this isn't always fruit as well. This can also be herbs and spices. You know, the Bordeaux family has a chemical in their DNA called pyrazine, which a lot of times can be found in things like green pepper and jalapeno. And I, for one, can never get the smell out of my head. You've ever smelled a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc? <laughs> it smells like jalapeno to me. It does. Yeah, Ethan, I mean, you bring up a great point with the Vitis vinifera species. We've been making wine for thousands of years now using this species and really honing in on Vitis vinifera. And there is a reason for that because this species in particular is extremely complex. It has over 200 different chemical compounds that are also prevalent in all of these other objects and fruits and herbs and whatnot that we were just referring to here. And so, I mean, yes, you can go to the store and buy your you know, little you know, box of grapes there. If you wanted to make wine out of that, sure, you could. Is it going to taste that great? Probably not. Maybe because you're just making it in a bucket on your counter at home, but also because the complexity of those grapes um, is not to the same extreme as the Vitis vinifera. 
Um, same thing goes for other fruits. I mean, these days you can make wine at, I mean, you always have been, but you can make wine out of any object with natural fermentable sugars. Um, right now, blueberry wine is actually mm-hmm. kind of taking off and you're seeing more of that, which is extremely fascinating. But for the most part, winemaking is with Thetis vinifera because it has so many different complex aromas and flavors. And a lot of those actually come from the fermentation process themselves. Exactly. I, mean, I can go and eat a Cabernet grape in October and it might taste a little like Cabernet Sauvignon, but all those other aromatics, they don't come out until that wine is finished. Yeah, the sugar, the, when you eat, eat grapes right before they're harvested, they're incredibly sweet. Yeah. They're really tasty. But um, I think that kind of masks a lot of these different aromas too. But once that alcohol you know, is starting to develop and that sugar goes away, yeah, you're right. So many of the aromas are coming out. It's really special. So the primary aromas, that is what every wine will have. And every grape has their own unique blend of them. But then we have secondary aromas, and secondary aromas are different, and they can be different in every single wine you ever have. So think of the primary as a chicken. I have a raw chicken. Every chicken kind of <laughs> tastes like the same. And then I'm going to have my own unique blend of spices or different ways of cooking that chicken that makes my chicken different from Madison's. That is how secondary aromas work. This is all what happens in the winery. Yeah, absolutely. So this is going to be up to the winemaker here. This is when you're going to be able to tell, all right, did the winemaker decide to put this wine into oak barrels, right? Um, That's probably the most prominent winemaking factor that you can have here. So putting it into oak barrels will make a big difference on the wine. Obviously you're going to get those, you know, baking spices, cloves, cinnamon, nutmeg. Do you want to use French oak or do you want to use American oak? Maybe you want more of that vanilla or coconut aroma. Maybe you want to even, even want to use Hungarian or acacia if you wanted to go down that route. Barrels or oak aging has a big impact for your secondary aromas. Then there's also leaves. The lees is going to be the spent yeast cells. So post-fermentation, the yeast cells have died off, but they're still in the wine. If you decide to leave those in contact with the wine, especially in a white wine, you're going to get this kind of like toasty, yeasty-like quality. If you ever had a Pinot Grigio from Italy, sometimes you get this beer yeast smell in that wine. That comes from the lees contact. Um, there's other winemaking techniques, um, even like carbonic maceration. Yeah. You know, if you were to be in Beaujolais, they have carbonic maceration or even semi-carbonic maceration, which is essentially whole clusters of grapes that you place in the tank. And you'll sometimes even pump CO2 in there, but the grapes will start an intracellular fermentation, which means they start fermenting from the inside of the grape. So the grapes will start fermenting. And then as they release that CO2, they'll burst open. And it's almost like this chain reaction and all the grapes in the tank will start to burst open and crush themselves. And because of that, you're going to get some really fresh, ripe, almost like even like kind of like fruit roll up, like artificial like qualities. Um, but it's, it's really interesting. Um, you, some people call that bubble gum or banana peel. It's, um, really fruity, fresh styles of wine. I love Beaujolais, but Maddie, I think we should note on probably the most prominent one and one that's pretty easy to decipher as well, especially in certain styles of Chardonnay. And that is one called malolactic fermentation, which can happen naturally if it allowed to happen. There's ways to prevent it and there's ways to kind of inoculate it as well. So malolactic fermentation occurs when you have this malic acid that is left in that wine. And think of the malic acid of the same 
acid that you experience when you bite into like a green apple. It's a little bit on the tart, sour, kind of aggressive acidity side. Well, if you let it sit there, you're going to have this lactic bacteria that's going to eat the malic acid and turn it into more lactic acid. And this is what's called, again, it's a conversion, malolactic fermentation. When you do this, a lot of things happen to the wine. It stabilizes the wine. It softens the wine. It makes it heavier. It lowers the acidity in the wine, but it also creates an aromatic compound, an aromatic compound that is found in things such as butter, cream, milk, and that is diacetyl. So you're creating an aromatic compound that is shared with other agricultural products. So you have a Chardonnay, let's say from Sonoma, that went through a complete malolactic fermentation. It's going to smell like butter or butterscotch. And yeah. you're not crazy when you think that. It shares the same aromatic compounds. And I think, Ethan, you had a great point earlier. All wines have primary aromas. All wines are going to have the inherent qualities of the fruit or the terroir. Not all wines have secondary aromas. Sometimes wines are meant to be more simple and just enjoyed in their youth, right? Um, you could have, you could easily have a Chardonnay that is just all stainless steel and it's a youthful Chardonnay and you're supposed to drink that wine young. And that's great. That's fine. Um, that's, you know, there's a, there's a time and a place for all wines, but some wines really will develop that much more and you'll start to get some of these secondary characteristics and even tertiary too. Absolutely. And when you're blind tasting, these are certain things that you, you look for and whether that wine has it or not can lead you in the right direction. Like if you're smelling something that has the same characteristics from a wine produced in the carbonic maceration method, well, really when it, you know, depending on which organization you're going through, there's not a lot of wines that are made in this style. The classics, of course, are Beaujolais. So you smell that, you're going to start thinking, possibly is this Beaujolais. But then you kind of go, you have to ask yourself, am I getting all the other things that Beaujolais will have? Does it have the right color? Does it have the right primary aromas? And then you can confirm that after you taste it. So it's important to understand how these are reflected in a blind tasting as well, not just in terms of evaluating the quality, which is also important. But as Madison mentioned, the last aroma, the tertiary aromas, and these tertiary aromas are something that you can almost never manipulate or mimic. They happen mm -hmm. naturally, and this is where the beauty in wine really evolves. Yeah, so when we're talking about tertiary aromas, what we're saying is the time in the bottle. So as this wine starts to age, it changes, right? That's the one of the most you know romantic things about wine is that it's ever-changing. If you could open up you know, this wine the second it was bottled, right, and then you try it three weeks later, it's going to be a lot different. You try that wine a year, two years, three years, ten years down the line, it's going to continue to evolve. Generally speaking, when wine ages, especially think of like a, think of a red wine, think of like a Napa Cabernet, you're going to lose some of that, you know, super fresh, ripe fruit character. And you're going to gain more of these, maybe like forest floor or cigar box, tobacco aromas, coffee aromas. And so some of these non-fruit aromas will start to take precedent over some of the fruit. But maybe you had fresh, ripe blackberries on this Cabernet Sauvignon. Well, you know, if it's 15 years old, chances are it's going to be more like dried fruit, like dried blackberries, maybe even baked at that point too. So the fruit character will start to progress. Just as if you know you were to dry out your fruit over as that fruit ages, it'll change in quality. The same thing goes in the wine as well. And in certain wines, you get like the sweet tobacco, leather, 
you'll get like truffle. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's such a beautiful bouquet of aromas is what they call it. So think about it now. You have the primary, it's my chicken. Secondary, it's my blend of herbs and spices that I, you know, or marinade that I put on this chicken. And then I cook the chicken. So I put it on the grill. And over time, I'll allow that, that Maillard reaction to occur. These, the skin starts to caramelize a little bit. That's my tertiary I'm surprised you didn't air fry that. <laughs> Happens to in an air fryer. <laughs> I got a very unique set of uh, herbs and spices for my air fryer. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's really the the aromas there. So Ethan, we kind of touched a little bit on how to smell, but do you want to touch on you know how to swirl and like what that does to the glass as well? Absolutely. You know, there's a lot of different aromatic compounds found in the glass of wine, and the first thing you always see people do, no matter you know, anytime they have a wine glass in their hand is they swirl it they just keep swirling it and i find myself doing this far more often than i should especially after teaching how to drink a glass of wine i still end up doing it but there's a lot of these delicate aromatic compounds that just like are right on top of that wine if you swirl it you're gonna lose all of those so we always suggest you first smell the wine before you swirl it so stick your nose in there and you're not going to smell from a distance you're going to stick your nose as far as you can into that glass of wine without getting wine into your nose. Really get all those aromatics. And this is why we use a wine glass, because you have that bowl. allows aromatics to be captured and directed towards your nose, but also gives you room to then swirl it. Once you swirl it, you start volatizing your esters. Start bringing out all these aromatic compounds out of the glass. You start picking up on everything. The primary fruits, whether it's fruit or the herbs or the spices or the vegetation in the wine or the earth, whether it's organic or inorganic, or the flowers in there. You start bringing all that out and you're lifting it out of the glass. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you're exactly right. That is why the wine glass is shaped the way that it is. We're so accustomed to conducting a tasting and we're just pouring, you know, an ounce and a half, two ounces max, right? Um, I rarely will pour more than that. And actually, I really prefer having smaller pours. Um, That's you know, it's great portion control for one, but also it really allows you to volatize your esters, right? Um, And really fill that glass filled with aromas. Um, You know, I've, you know, been to some of those mom and pop restaurants that you all love, uh, but they have a tiny little wine glass and it's filled to the brim. Try swirling that without wine just flying right out of there. It's pretty tough. So that is the reason you, you, you go to like a nice fine dining restaurant, chances are they're going to have large glasses. And so when you, when they fill the glass, it's going to look like you have no wine in there. But the reason is it gives you a lot of room to swirl the wine. And also for a wine, especially, you know, if it's a youthful, especially red wine, it's going to open up as you, you know, once you pop the cork in your Mm -hmm. glass and swirling it is the same idea of decanting it, you know, on a smaller scale. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to allow oxygen to integrate with that wine and the aromas will start to really come out. So 26 minutes later, (laughs) you finally get to taste the wine. Yes. And there's a lot of reasons of why you want to taste the wine. And I don't think I need to explain the main reasons because you obviously want to consume it. But when evaluating the wine, whether for quality or for blind tasting, there's a lot that the wine will tell you while it's on your palate. Now, it's important to note first, do I like it? Do I like the way it tastes? Then think, does it do I still taste what I was smelling? But what we're really trying to think about when the wine is on your palate is how it reacts to your taste buds. How does it make you feel? 
Absolutely. So when we think about our taste buds, right, there's essentially, what, there's five that we were taught in school, right? Mm -hmm. It's salt, sour, bitter, sweet, and then the umami, the savory component. So when we're thinking about the main ones for tasting wine, we're going to think about the sweetness, right? Um, is this wine dry? Is there any perceivable sugar on the palate? Um, just about all wine does have some residual sugar technically, However, what's perceivable to us is generally not recognized for most wines that you might be enjoying. Um, obviously, there's a whole spectrum, and you can have sweet wines as well. Um, but then we also have the sour component. When we think of sour, we're going to think of the acidity. And Ethan and I, sometimes we have to you know, bring ourselves back a little bit because we talk about acidity all the time. Mm -hmm. And to some people that maybe don't know as much about wine, that can seem really daunting because that sounds negative, right? Like, oh, I don't want acid in my wine, right? So what we mean by acidity is that mouth-watering sensation. It's really crisp. It's really fresh. It's refreshing. Um, it's just like drinking a lemonade on a hot day, right? And that's just – it's so – thirst quenching, it's refreshing, or a margarita, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the idea of like a margarita is, you know, you're, there's not that many ingredients, but you're trying to balance that, the tartness of the acidity of the lime. You have the sweetness maybe from that agave, and then you have the tequila, you have the alcohol, yeah. which would be the next component is the alcohol. Absolutely. And really, there's a, a really strong relationship between that sugar and that acid. One, the sugar makes it taste good. More sugar reflects more alcohol. It also lifts the fruits. More sugar will make the wine actually heavier on the palate. It will make the wine um, in the whole milk as opposed to like water where it's mm -hmm. lighter. Less sugar will make it closer to like a, a, a skim milk texture or feel or weight to it or like a water feel. Um, and the acidity kind of works the same way. More acidity, it's going to be a thinner, lighter wine. Less acidity, it's going to be often what people could refer to as like a flabbier wine, a heavier wine on the palate. And unfortunately, this all goes back to the vineyard. You know, as a grape ripens, it gets more sugar. And as it gets more sugar, it loses its acidity. So not only are you trying to look for the balanced grape when you're harvesting it, but you're also looking to balance the wine as you're making it because you want that nice balance between that sugar and that acid, you want that margarita feel to it. You want to balance it out. <laughs> and then we have alcohol. And alcohol, again, is the direct correlation with the amount of sugar that was in the grape. More alcohol, you're going to start getting this like heat. It's going to feel like a little bit heavier or hotter on the palate. It will lift all the aromatics too. That's what makes the wine kind of smell good. It helps bring out all those aromatic compounds. Less alcohol, the wine will be a little bit lighter, a little bit juicier, a little bit thinner on the palate. These are all things I have to think about while you're tasting the wine and as you're feeling on your palate. Sugar works through their sugar taste bud, makes things taste sweet. Acid will activate your sour taste bud. It actually activates your salivary glands and your mouth would water. Madison makes fun of me sometimes because when I'm tasting a wine and I'm trying to develop the amount of, or determine the amount of acidity in this wine, I'll start moving my mouth around, look like I'm like talking, but nothing's coming out of my mouth and to see how much saliva I'm feeling being built up. That is from all that acidity. How did it act? How much of my salivary glands were activated? Alcohol, that's kind of sometimes tough to determine. Usually you drink it really quickly and breathe out and see if you get much of like a heat or like a burn that comes from it. Gonna start breathing some fire. Exactly. <laughs> and then you gotta think about tannins. And of course, tannins are found in the grape skins, the pips, the stalks. And the amount of tannins really depends on the, the one, the grape, how it develops, where it grows, how it grows. 
and how the wine is made as well. And the tannins is really kind of the opposite of what the acidity will do, where acidity activates your salivary glands. The tannins will act as like a, a friction against them. And you'll feel this like numbing, drying sensation to it. Sometimes a good amount of tannin, especially what, when you're eating food, goes a very long way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially. Um, and then, you know, you have wines, you know, like from Italy, Sangiovese, Nebbiolo. Those wines, they can age a little too because they have such extreme tannins and high acidity, which helps them age. But again, as a wine ages, you're going to start to lose some of those tannins as well, which is really sometimes really pleasant with an aged Italian wine. But, um, but yeah, so all those components together is really how you can evaluate that. And also while you're tasting, you can also taste for flavors as well. Mm-hmm. So typically what we do is you can confirm the nose, right? So you had, you just went through and you smelled, you know, you smelled apricot or white peaches, Meyer lemon, maybe some blossom, but then on the palate, you taste this and you could get to confirm. And was the fruit, was it, you know, was it tart? Was it ripe? Was it overripe? And you can kind of confirm all of that once again. And of course, after all of said and done, and after you've kind of, you know, thought about all these different things, do you like the wine? Exactly. And again, this is very important because maybe you, by doing this exercise, you learn that what you love about your red wines is the tannins. Maybe you love that feeling, that numbing, drying sensation, and you always drink Napa Cab. Well, by doing this exercise and you realize that you love tannin, maybe you go out and try a Nebbiolo from Italy because those are just as or even more tannic. You start broadening your horizons when you start to understand how to properly evaluate and drink a wine. Again, this is also what we do when we're blind tasting. It's not necessarily trying to figure out what exactly what the wine is. It's trying to figure out what the wine is not. Process of elimination through what the wine is telling you. So Going back to that Nebbiolo, when I looked at that wine, does it look like a Nebbiolo? Does it smell like a Nebbiolo? Does it have the primary, secondary, and the tertiary notes of the Nebbiolo? And then when I taste it, does it have the taste that a Nebbiolo will have to help me confirm both my sight and my nose? Is it really acidic? Is it really, really dry? Is it really tannic? And at that point, I can make a educated guess or pretty confident guess that through what I looked at and through what I smelled and through what I taste, it's going to be the wine I was thinking of. So blind tasting or not, the idea with all of the 30 plus minutes that Ethan and I just told y'all, the idea is really just to appreciate the wine and appreciate where this wine came from and all the individuals that made this, you know, from out in the vineyard, from all the individuals that were pruning it to all the harvest workers and those sorting the grapes And did the winemaker decide to undergo malolactic fermentation or carbonic maceration? And really the time in the bottle and how many other hands this bottle has gone through to get on your table at this time with whoever you're enjoying that with. And that is really the idea with wine. So at the end of the day, again, guys, we always say it, but drink what you like, how you like it, but really have some fun evaluating wine as well. There's a whole other dimension to the enjoyment of wine. And we hope that we were able to share, you know, a tidbit or two with you guys to inspire you guys to go out and enjoy some more wine. Cheers, folks. <laughs>